We believe that God works by his spirit, through his word, for his glory. And that it's always been this way. And so what we can do is try to get ourselves as close to that word as possible and then pray and ask that his spirit would enliven it. So we're going to be in John 4. So if you want to get the word close to you, it's on page 889 in our small font pew Bibles. If you want a bigger font Bible, bring your Bible. We're going to be in John 4. And as we turn to this, let me pray and ask that God would enliven his word by his spirit and work for his glory. Lord, now as we we meet Jesus, as he meets this woman at the well, and they have this really quite profound interchange, we pray as we look at it, Lord, that, that by your spirit you would do something to us that we cannot do ourselves. And I'm, I mainly am asking God that you would awaken affections in us for Jesus, feelings for him, delight in him. Please do this work, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A few years ago, I came across an article about the third most popular course for undergraduates at Harvard University. It was not what you would expect. The top two classes were intro to economics and intro to computer science, which makes sense. If you're really smart, these look like pathways to leverage your intelligence to have great careers. But the third class was surprising. It it was generating 700 students. It was so big that they had to move it to a different room. And students were, were taking up every seat and spilling out into the hallways. It was taught by Professor, Professor Michael Pewitt, and it was titled Classical Chinese Ethical and Political Theory. Drawing from ancient Chinese philosophers, Pewitt was offering undergraduates a vision of the good life that was very counter, very different to the vision of life their culture was offering them. And in 2016, he turned this wildly popular class into a book titled The Path, What Chinese Philosophers Can Teach Us About the Good Life. Well, I picked it up and read it with some curiosity a few years ago, and I found it filled with interesting insights about the best way to navigate life, seemingly counterintuitive things that really are part of what we might call collective human wisdom. However, I was, I was surprised by the total absence of one theme in particular. In a book that promised guidance into the good life, the enjoyable life, there wasn't so much as a hint about praise or worship. It was as though life were pictured as a long, arduous journey up a steep mountain. And if you have enough skills, you can navigate it well. But at the top of the mountain, there was no promise of a vista. Nothing at all that might take your breath away. Nothing that would cause you to fall to your knees and worship. In fact, not a whole lot that was bigger than you. And this reminded me of just how different the vision of life that the Bible sets forth really is. The Bible also at times 
pictures life as a path, sometimes a narrow one, and we have to learn how to navigate it, and it's not easy, and we need wisdom for this. But the Bible is constantly asking the travelers to lift up their eyes, to see the view, to have their breath taken away, to fall to their knees and worship and praise. In fact, you could say that, that praise and worship is the throbbing heart of the Bible. It's the fire of life. You could say that worship is the point of the Bible. If by worship you mean the glory and glorification of God. It's its driving theme. I want you to feel how strange that is when you think of other ways of viewing life. The Bible tells us that salvation or redemption is for the purpose of worship. Did you know that? Back in Exodus, when God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and he delivers Israel from slavery, he does it so they can worship him. Exodus 7, God says to Moses, go tell Pharaoh this. Moses says, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Then at the end of the Bible, when we get a vision of God's redeemed people, his church, in a redeemed world, we read that there will no longer be anything accursed. This is Revelation 22, the last chapter. There won't be anything accursed. This means in the world, it'll, the curse will be gone. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, in the earth, and his servants will worship him. At one point in the prophet Isaiah, God speaking about the people he's redeemed and called, he actually says, these are the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. He says, I made the people in order to praise me. Now, worship in the Bible, it's a really broad and deep idea. It, it in it involves more than just kind of speaking song with your mouth and lifting up your hands. Worship in the Bible is about what you value most, what you desire, what you revere, what you're putting your trust in, what you want. Namely, worship is about what you love. Find out what a man worships, the Bible says, and you'll find out what he's living for. Find out what a woman's altar is and you'll find out who her God is. This is what the Bible says life is about. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to draw our attention to a, to a phrase, a small comment that Jesus makes in this interchange with the woman at the well. Just, just two words, which, which I think pose for us a very important question about worship. So in John 4... Jesus is traveling from, from Jerusalem or Judea up to Galilee. Galilee's where he's from. He, he goes about 30 miles and he ends up in, in Samaria in a town called Sakur. And it's the middle of the day and it's hot. Maybe you're familiar with the story in John 4. He, he stops at a well. His disciples go into town to get food. And he finds himself suddenly alone with a woman who's come to draw water. The two fall into a conversation that has its twists and turns, but for the careful reader, you see it winding deeper and deeper, just like the well they're sitting next to. It turns to her broken relational life, which then moves to comments about living water and soul satisfaction, and it finally then lands in verse 20 through 24 on the theme of worship, and then in 25 and 26 on the identity of Jesus. 
Now, when the theme of worship comes up, and you need to notice this in John, John uses the term for worship in, in his gospel, in the 21 chapters, he uses the term for worship 12 times. 10 of those occurrences are in verses 20 through 24 of John 4. So he's pressing us into this theme by allowing Jesus to have a conversation with a woman about it. And it's this single phrase in verse 23, just two words that I think puts a question to us. The phrase is this, true worshipers, true worshipers. It's from Jesus's mouth. And I'm going to read you, I'm going to read you the verses. This is verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Behind Jesus' words here about true worship is the relentless biblical theme that human beings are worshipers. They're hardwired to do it. What's interesting to notice is that Jesus is not imagining a division in humans between those who don't worship and those who do, or between those who don't go to church and those who do. He's drawing a distinction between true worshipers and idolaters. That's why he uses the word true worship. Because the assumption is you're worshiping, it's either true worship or false worship. Because the vision in the Bible is that human beings are strangely crafted in this way where our hearts are like valuing and desiring factories. And that which we want most is what we're honoring most and is what we're worshiping. So I just want to explore with you by looking more closely at Jesus' words here, what does he mean by a true worshiper? Are you a true worshiper? How would you know? How would you even go about answering that question? Does it simply mean you go to church? That you listen to Christian worship music? That you talk about God? What, what, what does Jesus mean when he says that true worshipers are what the Father is now seeking? So the way we're going to look at this is, is I want to show you that, that essentially Jesus will, will say two things here about true worship. One has to do with seeing and one has to do with savoring. Or to put it in a sentence, this is just the main point of the sermon. True worship is seeing and savoring the true God. So let's start with seeing. Jesus says in verse 22 to the woman that you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know. There seems to be some idea about worship being connected to knowing or seeing rightly. Now, there's a lot behind this dialogue about worship, which the woman brings up in verse 20. Let me, let me read the dialogue to you and then try to give you some context, because there's a lot going on behind it. She says in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Remember, they're, they're in Samaria. It's probably Mount Gerizim where they are. But you say, pointing to Jesus, meaning your people, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus responds, verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. 
for salvation is from the Jews. Now, now the, the, the tension behind this conversation between Jesus and this woman, or between the Jews and Samaritans, it, it goes back hundreds of years to the conflict that Israel had with Assyria. 700 years before Assyria came in and they deported a lot of the Jews. And then as the Jews came back to the land after the deportation and exile, there were people who had remained in the land the whole time in Samaria who had mingled Judaism with other religions. And this group known as the Samaritans then actually adopted a different Bible from the Jews. The Samaritans only believed that the first five books of the Bible were the Bible. So no Joshua, no First or Second Kings, no First and Second Chronicles. Some of you are like, I'd be glad not to have those. But these books, which are so clear about God locating his name in Zion at the temple at David's throne, are, are lopped off. And so what, what Jesus is saying here is, your truncated book of Revelation is truncating your vision of God. So you do not know what you're trying to worship. But salvation comes from the Jews. So what Jesus is saying is the revelation, the Bible that the Jews have, which ultimately is pointing to him, this is the lens through which you know the God that you worship. So this is what I think the first point is about true worship. True worship is anchored in rightly seeing God. It's not worshiping what you think God is, it's worshiping who God is. And this means that true worship isn't rooted in emotionalism or going to church. Don't miss this. The Samaritans were worshiping. They had a temple. They were sacrificing animals and reading scripture. It's not like they were staying home from church. They weren't atheist. Jesus is saying, you can think you're worshiping, but if you are not seeing the true God, you're not worshiping. So how, how do we see this, the true God? Why is Jesus talking this way? Why isn't it enough just to be genuine and sincere? The reason this is coming up like this is because although humans are hardwired to worship, we're also prone to make idols and false gods. John Calvin wrote that the human heart is an idol factory. Meaning, our, our hearts cannot help but to find things that we desire and long for and serve. But by our nature, we typically don't find the right things. And this bleeds into our tendency in how we, by nature, think about God. Patrick Morley wrote in his book, The Rest of Your Life, and this is a great quote. There is the God we want, and there is the God who is. And they are not the same. The turning point in our lives is when we stop seeking the God we want and start seeking the God who is. A lot of people think the key to worship is sincerity. That is not enough. Jesus is saying it starts with seeing. And we have a tendency to build in our hearts false gods. You know, this is why the first two commandments are what they are. You know, the first two commandments are all about worship. And they're all about this resistance to idol making. The first commandment is, and this is in Exodus, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. God's fierce prohibition against making any images is rooted in the fact that humans 
as well-meaning as they may be, will inevitably misrepresent him if they try to draw a picture of him. And this is true whether you're making a physical idol or whether humans are crafting an ideology that they think is the truth or coming up with a philosophy they think is the truth or carving out and developing their own story of the world which they think is the truth. In every case, God is saying, you cannot represent me rightly and therefore I forbid human beings to construct an image of me. Instead, and this is the key, God says worship is a response not to our imaginings about him, but to his revelation of himself. And we see God through his word, his word written and his word incarnate. And so seeing God, true worship has to begin with God's revelation of himself through his word, or it will end up and always trend towards being rooted in idolatry or whatever God we want that we conjure up. So here's the first question I think this passage poses to us that Jesus seems to be posing to the Samaritan woman. What are we worshiping? The Samaritans thought they knew God and were worshiping him, but Jesus said you aren't. Would he say that to any of us? How do you know if you're worshiping the true God instead of a man-made image? Are we worshiping the God we want from the sections of the Bible that we like? Or are we worshiping the God who is? Are we worshiping a false God that has trapped us in a deceptive but subtle form of idolatry instead of the true God who wants to liberate us and give us life? Worship is not a response to the God we create. Worship is a response to God as he reveals himself as he reveals himself in the Bible. This is why in our corporate worship on Sundays, it's so Bible-saturated. Corporate worship requires the word, reading, preaching, and singing the Bible. It requires prayer that is a pleading of the promises of the Bible, that's adoring and thanking the God of the Bible, that's confessing sins before the holiness of the God of the Bible. Our worship involves two sacraments. I'm pointing to them. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Why? Because these are the tokens by which Jesus says you visibly see the gospel. People are born again by the Spirit. We baptize them. Jesus, through his blood, invites us to communion with God. All our worship, when we gather corporately, is coming out of how God reveals himself in the Bible. And this matters so much because, one... We're to honor God in our worship. And we're not honoring him if we're worshiping a false conjecture of who he is. And second, it matters so much because how we worship God shapes our view of God. Sing bad theology and you will have bad theology. If we are worshiping a modern man-made vision of God, then we will be led into a slow but steady malformation of our hearts in their view of God. So true worship is a response to seeing the true God. We must worship, as Jesus says, what we know. But that's not all that worship involves. You know, it's not enough just to see something rightly. You have to be moved by it. I mean, I I remember my, my journey through life in middle school and high school with math. It was like I'd come to a point where I would 
I would see it perfectly. I get it, how it works, and it doesn't move me at all. Is that what we mean? You just need to know about God. Like, okay, I believe in the Trinity. I get it, the resurrection, the empty tomb, but my parents are still dragging me to church because I could care less about this. That's, that's not enough. So you need more than seeing. And this is where we see the second facet of worship is not just seeing the true God, but savoring the true God. I don't think it's a coincidence that just prior to the topic of worship coming up in this passage, it has talked about the deeper longings of the heart. I don't think it's a coincidence. Jesus asked the woman for a drink in verse 10, but then he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, he will never be thirsty again. Je Jesus is speaking of the satisfaction of the soul that only he can give. He's talking about that, that soul that comes to him thirsty, tired of the broken cisterns of the world and says, I would drink, please, I'm thirsty. And this brings us to our second aspect of worship. Jesus is presenting himself not just as the way to worship God the Father here, but as the very satisfaction of our soul. I recently came across the work of this amazing nun. Her name's Sister Mariella Gable. She earned a PhD in literature from a top university in the 1930s. And she went on to teach English literature at St. Benedict's College, get this, from 1928 to 1973. And her work influenced people like Flannery O'Connor. And she writes in one place about what she calls the Christian personality. She's talking about how the kind of the heart and the personality of a Christian are to be formed and developed. And she particularly focuses on the fact that this personality must develop an appropriate response to value. What exactly does this mean? And I'm quoting her now. It means that all the things we can know are arranged in a hierarchy of being, some deserving less love and some more. It means that we strive to give each thing the love it deserves. A classic personality, think Christian personality or properly ordered personality, is never absolutely achieved, but the person striving to attain its perfection habitually endeavors to make an appropriate response to value. I love people that think that way, that dissect the heart. She's just, she's just quoting Augustine when he says life comes down to the ordering of loves in our heart. And what she's saying is true worship is when a heart begins to rightly value the objects which are most valuable. It's like a diamond is worth more than a quartz. And if you look at a quartz and you value it more, something's off in your valuing. But how do you change your valuing? As the passage goes on, I think it's interesting that Jesus is introduced into the center of this. As, it, as the passage talks about worshiping the Father, Jesus is suddenly presenting himself as the Messiah, the anointed and chosen one. 
And I think what he's starting to get at is it is through encountering him that our hearts become awakened and it is through savoring him that they start to move into worship. Or you might say it's through recognizing what God is doing for you in this man that your affections begin to get aflame. John Piper is someone who, who I think is better than anyone on writing about the affections, particularly in worship. And here's what he says about true worship. This is a quote, I just want to read this to you. The authenticating inner essence of worship is being satisfied with Christ, prizing Christ, cherishing Christ, treasuring Christ. This is tremendously relevant for understanding what worship services should be about. When we say that what we do on Sunday is to go hard after God, what we mean is that we're going hard after satisfaction in God. And going hard after God as our prize. And going hard after God as our treasure, our soul food, our heart delight, our spirit's pleasure. It means that we're going hard after all that God is for us in Christ Jesus, crucified and risen. We, we could think of the great psalmist of the Bible, the great lover of God, David, who in Psalm 63 says, My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of fare. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night. True worship is seeing and savoring the true God as he presents himself to us and for us in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're anything like me, you think you do a pretty good job with the seeing and maybe I'm not as good at the seeing as I think, but I, I really try to study the Bible. I try to get it right. You know, I know who God is as best as I can. And so if you're like me, you, you might think you're doing okay with the seeing. But if you're like me, you may struggle with the savoring. My heart does not naturally overflow with affection for God. I mean, the pilot lights on, but I mean, it just, I just sometimes just can't seem to get a lot of oxygen to it. I, I don't know if you can relate to that. And it's something I struggle with. I mean, I have moments, but, but, but I'd like to feel more aflame for God often. And, and maybe you can relate to that. So with the, the end, of, end of our sermon, I, I just want to ask, what could we do to cultivate hearts that not only see the true God, but begin to savor him? Because these are the worshipers God the Father is looking for. And I'm just going to leave us with the few things I think we can do to cultivate a heart for more passionate worship. The first thing I want us to notice is that cultivating a heart for true worship begins with God, not us. It's not about our efforts to conjure up emotion or to imagine a God worthy of our praise. We can do all these things and it can produce feelings in us. But I want you to see that's not the beginning point. Rather, cultivating a true heart of worship begins with God because it's a response to what God is already doing. And we can see that if we notice a phrase that's used twice between verses 23 and 24 where Jesus is talking about the type of worship the type of worshiper God's looking for. It's the phrase, in spirit and truth. Notice it twice, verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. Okay, what do you mean by that, Jesus? Now, I think, I mean, certainly it means authenticity. I think we read this sometimes, like, yeah, he just wants you to be authentic. He wants you to be sincere. But you can be sincere and wrong at the same time. The Samaritans were sincere and they were wrong. So what does he mean? When he says spirit and truth, by truth, I think, I think he's, he's saying this is, this is the truth of God's revelation of himself, which for us comes through his word. So worship must begin by an immersion in the word of God where the worshiper is encountering God's revelation of himself coming and touching not just the worshiper's mind but the heart. And this begins to carve out a space inside a person and organize the furniture or organize the kindling for the fire, if you will, that God then can baptize with passion. So it begins with encountering God's revelation to us through his word. But that's not all. Jesus doesn't just say he wants us to worship him in truth. He says in spirit and truth. What does he mean by spirit? Now, I think one of the things he means by spirit, because he's just said God is spirit, so you're to worship God in spirit and truth, and he's just made the point that no longer is worship relegated to one geographical location. So surely what he means is you can connect with God in worship anywhere now. Okay, so that's one of the things he means by spirit. But if you think about how John, or how the, how the word spirit has been used in this gospel, it means more than just a general sense of being able to worship God anywhere. In John 3, just one chapter prior to this, in John 4, Jesus teaches that in order to know him, you have to be born again by the spirit. Then in John 7, in another conversation about living water, Jesus says in John 7, verses 38 through 39, he says that he is the one who gives the spirit without measure. And the one who has the spirit from them will flow rivers of living water. So I think what this means is that in order to worship God with passion, it requires not only encountering God in his revelation, but being encountered and moved upon by God the Holy Spirit, vivifying our hearts and giving us spiritual affections. Imagine if you didn't have taste buds and people were like, honey is so sweet, and you put it on your tongue and you're like, nothing, I got nothing. And people are like, but it's so sweet, I got nothing. That's what we're like spiritually. People are like, God is great, and we're like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know. How do you get from that to what you see in the Bible when people are falling on their face? It requires a work of God, the Holy Spirit. So we need God in order to worship God. And I just want to point out here, in our Anglican tradition, we begin every service by praying for the Holy Spirit to enable us to rightly magnify God. We prayed it this morning. This collect, which I'll read for you, it's called the Collect of Purity. It was written in 975 in the 10th century in Latin. Thomas Cranmer translated it into English and it's in our book on prayer. This is a really old prayer. And I just want you to notice what we're doing 
when we come from our busy lives into church and pray this. Think about this in the context of worship. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And here's giving the reason. Why, why are we asking that the Holy Spirit would cleanse our hearts? So that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord, amen. The assumption is you are not going to be able to worthily magnify God unless God works on your heart. That's why we pray this every Sunday. I love this prayer. You should memorize it. Now, the language in the prayer about the Holy Spirit cleansing the thoughts of our hearts, this actually brings us to our second tip about how to cultivate a heart of worship. The first thing we said was God's got to work on us. So pray that the Spirit working through the Word would awaken your heart to savor Jesus, to worship Him. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing, though, and this connects to the word cleansing, the second thing you can do to cultivate a heart of worship You can clear the land of idols. If the biggest roadblock to worship is not no worship but false worship, search your heart out. What is it that you walk in here wanting most? What is it that you walk in here fearing most, man or God? What is it that you walk in here hoping in most? You know, I love this passage in the Old Testament when King Josiah, you know, Israel's constantly getting trapped in idolatry. Same thing happens to churches and Christians, right? And Josiah comes in like just a wild man, clearing things out. And it says, the king commanded Hilkiah, this is Josiah, the high priest and the priest of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord the vessels made for Baal. And to bring out the Asherah, this is an idol pole, from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem. And listen to what he does. Bring them out to the brook of Kidron and burn it at the brook and beat it to dust. Josiah is preparing a people to worship by clearing the land of idols. So one of the things you can do on Sunday morning is try to get a little space. If you've got a big family, just go into your closet, literally, and shut the door. For one minute, Jesus says, pray in your closet where people can't see. And just lift your hands up and say, God, here's what I want more than I want you. And I cannot reorder my heart's loves, but I at least want want you to know that if somehow I could want you more than I want these things, that I would want that. Please help me, God, see that you are more valuable than anything else I could be given. It doesn't mean you sh- these things you, other things you want are bad. It's, it's the ordering. It's the ordering. Remember, Sister Mariella. It's the ordering. Okay, last thing. So pray for God to awaken your heart to savor him. Cleanse out the idols that you might be savoring more than God. And finally, you can lean into the burning worship that's already going on. We're given a vision in the book of Revelation that right now, day and night, never ceasing is worship of God, both from these crazy creatures, the seraphim, and from the 24 elders. Like right now, you know what's going on in heaven? People are taking their crowns and throwing them on the ground before God and falling on their face. And that corporate worship, we begin to feel when we step into this corporate worship. So one of the things that can help you worship, if you feel dry, is leaning into the worship already going on. 
Maybe put on a worship song or walk into church and worship with the brothers and sisters in Christ. I remember when I was younger in high school, hearing Father Greg, that's what we called our, 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 our Episcopal priest there at Church of the Good Samaritan in Paoli. Father Greg comes in and the rectory was right across the parking lot. So he walks in at Sunday morning and he said, you know, I was really exhausted this morning and I was dragging and I felt no passion. And then he said, and then I walked in here and the liturgy began. And slowly but steadily, I got caught up in hundreds of years of the church's worship through the prayers and I got lifted up on the voices of the people and slowly but surely my heart began to be open like a flower and I began to worship. Sometimes, friends, we just need to lean into the worship of our brothers and sisters in Christ that's already going on. The King James Bible says that God inhabits the praise of his people. Jesus says in John 4 that the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Never settle for a philosophy or vision of life that doesn't give you a vista that will take your breath away. And plead with God that rather than giving your heart to that which will not satisfy, that you will come to the streams, the source of living water, and you will see and you will savor the living God. Let me pray for us. Lord, give this church a burning heart for worship. It is the end for which we were made. And a worshiping heart is often a glad and healthy heart, Lord. So whatever's in the way, Lord, our idolatry, fear of man, praise of performance, I don't know, God, you know. Would you please, using the most gentle means necessary and possible, remove the idols from our hearts and enthrone your son and give us a sweet savoring of him. Amen.